Overpriced Podcast, the podcast about linguistic discrimination. I'm Carrie Gillen. And I'm Megan Figueroa. Today we're going to talk about whales. I mean, well, first of all, whales. Did you know? You know, because we talked about this before, but oh my god, dolphins are whales. I did not know that. I don't know what I thought. I thought dolphins and porpoises were a separate category. I did too. I know that I had, I went through the uh, educational system of Arizona, which is like the second worst in the United States, but I feel like dolphins represented to me as something different than whales. Yeah. Right? Yep. In, informally, whales and, are just separate from porpoises and dolphins, but formally, like actually species like and genus wise, they are, they are all whales. So it's not your fault. Okay. It's not your fault and not my fault that we thought there was a hard and fast difference because like that's how informally we use the word whale is that we have a separate category. Wow. Mhm. So that's the informal use basically? Yeah, the informal use is that whales are one category, dolphins, orcas, uh porpoises are another, but actually when you look at the taxonomy they're all whales. Wow. Okay, so we've been sent this article, this NPR uh, science article. Uh, the headline, two... Th- Actually, no, we were sent different versions. Oh, so really? we were sent a, a New York Times version by someone, and then I don't, I don't remember what the other person sent. But yeah, so there's many different uh, articles that we've been sent on this one topic. Yeah, people <laughs> are excited. And I don't mean like the people sending it to us. I mean like... Everybody. Toothed whales use a vocal fry to hunt for food. So first, let's talk about what a toothed whale is. Yes, please, because... Okay, so this picture on NPR has a picture of a dolphin, and I'm like, what the heck, when I first opened this, right? (laughs) But I'm like, okay, apparently a toothed whale, uh, which includes bottlenose dolphins, orcas, and pilot whales... Well, it includes all dolphins, all porpoises, and okay. any other whale that has a tooth, or has teeth. So there are beaked whales and sperm whales that also have teeth. Oh. And then there's another set of whales that are baleen whales, and they, they have, they sort of like suck in krill, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. They have like a sieve. Oh, they, um, they're plates, I guess. They use these plates. Like a colander? Like a colander? Colander? Kind of like a, yeah, sieve. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so I don't know if you know this about me, Carrie, but I actually think that orcas are terrifying. Um. <laughs> well, they are. I mean, I mean. They, don't, they don't go out of the way to attack humans, but if you happen to look like a seal, you know, you're wearing a wetsuit. Yeah. It could happen. It, yeah. And they have teeth. <laughs> yes, they have Because they are a and toothed whale. A toothed whale. And they go after seals. They just, like, they are vicious. They're very vicious. I love them, but they are very scary. I love seals, so I'm team seal. I also love seals, <laughs> but... <laughs> I'm just guessing, like, right off the bat, that people love a story like this because we all love animal stories. But I think vocal fry is still something that people are very Obsessed much... with? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's like, okay, all right, you got two things that get people to click this. Uh, but it's actually really interesting because uh, having teeth allow these toothed whales to produce an array of vocalizations. Is it the teeth that is helping them do it, or the lips? So the phonic lips, but I think 
You have to have teeth to have the right kind of lips. Or is it an accident? Oh, an accident of what, like evolution? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I thought it was the the former, that that it was both of it. But Oh, okay. It could be. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, we don't know. Someone, you know what? A uh, biologist or some, you know, a marine biologist can tell us. But what I have gathered is that they have a larynx, but it doesn't produce sound. The way a that larynx? They... <laughs> How do you say it? Larynx. <laughs> but that doesn't produce sound. It's um, something called uh, phonic lips, which is in their nose. I guess this is a new development because whoever it is that studies toothed whales hasn't really been able to look at phonic lips in action. But they decided to put one of those like little cameras through their little blowhole to see it in action. And when they did that, they were able to see that um, the phonic lips going at high speed... And that these were definitely moving when echolocation clicks were being made. So, so they were creating the echolocation. Yes, clicks. Yes, that is the that is the uh, the conclusion that was to be made of this. So, phonic lip seems like such a weird name. It's um, the nasopharyngeal airspace. There's like these. Uh, lip-like structures inside. Yeah. They move the air through the nasal tract. Like, we have a nasal tract, right? But the phonic lips are basically acting as the vocal cords. Yeah. It's as if we had vocal cords, like, halfway up our nose. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, the movement of the phonic lips move, like vibrates surrounding tissue, which causes a sound. It's kind of like, when we think about vocal fry in humans... It's our vocal cords, so not our phonic lips, but our vocal cords when we um, are using vocal fry are mostly slack and heavy. And so then the air is being passed through something that's slack and heavy. Yeah, so when you're when they're slack, they are uh, creating sound at a lower frequency than if they were more taut. Exactly, exactly. So like if they were extremely taut, it, you get something like a falsetto, right? Mm-hmm. And so actually... Toothed whales can do a falsetto too. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so they have the, it's kind of, I guess, three different registers vocal fry, falsetto, and then like kind of baseline. Yeah. And, and for humans, we would call this a modality, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. And we have five in human speech, but the, the, we share those three vocal fry, sort of regular and falsetto. Yeah. Which so is kind of cool. Really, really cool. And all these three things in toothed whales have different functions. It's the vocal fry register that's responsible for the echolocation, which, if you don't know or need a reminder, echolocation is, you know, basically using sound to figure out where things are in space um, mm-hmm. because the sound vibrates off. Or, of. Yeah, and and whales and bats use it, and actually humans can too. Yeah, it's true. Well, anyway, so it's like the slack when they're when their phonic lips <laughs> are the slackest. That's when they're echolocating. Exactly, and that's doing the vocal fry, just as if a human has their slack vocal cords, um, and it's creating sound at a, a lower frequency. But we're not echolocating when we do that. <laughs> we could, we could. You could echolocate using anything, it's you, true. you know, any part of your range 
Yep. Although, as far as I know, the people who do use echolocation just use clicks. But So, apparently, when this whale is, like, a few thousand feet below the surface of the water, its lungs collapse under the collapse under the pressure, but inside the bony structure of the nose, air can continue to move around and power echolocate. Power mm-hmm. echolocation. So, I mean, it does seem to be an evolutionary thing. I mean, by moving all the air into the nose then, um, they're able to generate much higher pressures and they can make basically the loudest sounds any human or any animal can make on the planet. <laughs> That's cool. It's really cool. And this NPR article ends... And more importantly, feed themselves in the process, turning vocal fry into fish fry. <laughs> I saw that. Nice. <laughs> oh. But yeah, I always thought echolocation was really neat. I guess I've never... I've thought about it more with bats, I guess. I just never really thought about how dolphins were doing it, or tooth whales in general. I certainly know they make noises, but... Yeah, this is really, really neat. Although, isn't it interesting? Because I feel like a lot of people think vocal fry is just like this really nasally thing because they're like associating it with so many different things. And like, in this case... It truly is nasally. It truly is nasally. (laughs) But then literally all three ways of making right. sound for them is nasal <laughs> it is it is <laughs> yeah that's super cool though i mean super cool yeah cool well thanks for sharing everyone and, uh yeah really thank you everybody who sent us that this to talk about because it's fascinating and i want to learn more and i learned something about english and how whale the word whale has a different meaning yeah than it does in science. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm happy to go on with my life knowing that dolphins and porpoises are whales. I mean, I just didn't know. Yes, and orcas. And I uh, just always would say orca because I thought killer whale was incorrect. And mm. no, it's correct. Yeah. They do kill and they are whales. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually very descriptive and accurate. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> oh, that's so um, funny. Uh, we're actually talking to a science journalist today. So that's, that's true. Yeah. That is very true. About something very different, but still yeah. biology. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of fun. Anatomy. I know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And a lot of fun for sure. Oh, and if you want to join, if you want to become a patron, you can join at www.patreon.com slash vocal fries pod and got stickers and bonus episodes our latest uh bonus episode is about what is it fanelect yes it's about the word fanelect well it's about whether swifties have their own you know lect their own version of english right so a fanelect or you know it might not be a fanelect but yeah yeah so that's fun too so yeah Mm -hmm. please join we appreciate you all and we hope you enjoy the episode I am so excited. We're so excited <laughs> to have Rachel E. Gross, an award-winning science journalist based in Brooklyn, 
Um, she is the author of Vagina Obscura, an anatomical voyage, published in 2022, actually March of 2022. And uh, Vagina Obscura recently made the 2023 Penn E.O. Wilson Literary Science Writing Award long list. It was shortlisted for the 2023 Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Nonfiction. It's a New York Times editor's choice and a Science Friday best science book to read this summer. Congrats on the paperback release. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Megan. I'm really excited to be here. I still don't really know who our fans are, but on Twitter, you had tweeted about a recent Atlantic piece I'll get to later, but I said, oh my gosh, please come on our podcast. And then I saw that we had like some people that are like, oh my gosh, like, yes, make this happen. I'm like, are these people that actually listen to us? But it seems like this is like a magical collab here right now. Yeah. I mean, I think that you're really interested in the implications of the words we use in a bunch of different fields. And I've specifically been looking really closely at medical language and how it seeps into our culture in many unexpected ways. So I was super excited to come on. Ooh, can you give us a little hint of something that seeps into our language? Yeah. Recently, as you know, I was working on a piece about the weirdness of pregnancy language. And I think that everybody has heard this phrase, geriatric pregnancy, which actually is not used that much um, in the medical sphere, and yet has made its way into the popular imagination um, and kind of signifies how medicine views women who are, in this case, 35 or older. Um, And it has this ageist bent to it. It feels like we're being called decrepit or kind of blamed for our own, quote, choices, quote, later in life, many scare quotes. Um, But so it's like become the symbol of something that maybe it wasn't intended to be. Uh, And I think it has grown larger in the public imagination than it might have even been in medicine. Yeah, I, I turned 35 this past summer. And then Congratulations. To, yes, thank you. Your power uh, is growing. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> you know, when I went to the gynecologist like this year, um, I had mentioned to her that term just because like I like to talk to my doctors about things because I'm oh curious. Oh my God, same. <laughs> yeah. And, and she was just like, you know, like rolled her eyes at it basically. Like she is, she is beyond that. She, you know, she is more thoughtful than that. Um, She is like very, that carries a lot of baggage or geriatric pregnancy as if if you make this choice to have a baby after 35 you are a terrible person like you said the blame part comes in exactly and yeah i agree with you most especially younger gynecologists that i talk to often roll their eyes at that word and they like clearly wouldn't use it but at the same time there are many of other generations who do think that way um so yeah, it's a crapshoot. And it's not like you would say all of medicine views women this way or anything. Right, absolutely. And I'd heard of it, right? Like I went in right. knowing that the 35 was, you know, this this magical, not magical, terrible right, age. This cliff. Apparently. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Can you take us back and tell us why you wanted to write Vagina Obscura? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I've always loved vaginas and reproductive biology. I've been a science writer for more than 10 years now. Um But this particular book uh, kind of germinated when I was a science editor at Smithsonian Magazine, and I was doing a lot of coverage of reproductive health stuff. um, And at the same time, I was also running a column called like Unsung Women in the History of Science. It still lives on at Smithsonian.com. Layla McNeil is the academic writer who was behind most of those columns. I began to notice this 
kind of overlap between the two areas of coverage, where this one column was about uh, women and LGBTQ and minority scientists who had often been pushed out of their fields or faced a ton of systemic challenges to get their questions answered and make a mark in science. Um, and, you know, often they didn't get to center the type of people and questions they wanted to. And here on the other hand, we're covering reproductive biology and we're learning all of these incredibly basic things like what's the composition of vaginal mucus in 2018. And I began to feel like there's no coincidence that there's a lack of women in science and a lack of women's bodies and knowledge about them in science. Um, the marginalization of women in science directly leads to the marginalization of women's bodies in science. And so I wanted to write about that connection in a way that was a kind of wonder-filled voyage into what we think of as the female body and both why we don't know so much and what we're finally learning. Um, so that's that's how the book came about. And And why do you love the vagina? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Who doesn't? Um, <laughs> my mom is a doctor and I have always, I think, felt comfortable being very frank about body stuff. And I like to make people uncomfortable. And I think <laughs> like I think an editor described me recently as like my entire career is like poking hornet's nest that nobody else wants to touch. And I think that's such a huge compliment. <laughs> Yeah, yeah you're right. I mean, I think it depends yeah, if you definitely. want to be the recipient of all that hate and hornet. Um, well, yeah, but know. yeah, I mean, I didn't think about it that way, but I do feel comfortable and in fact relish addressing topics that other people don't want to take on. And I, I just find it fascinating when there is this squeamishness and this taboo around something that I find like pretty joyous and cool and fascinating. And I like to kind of tease out why we are so uncomfortable with these things. Well, I was going to ask you if you're a big um, fan of biology when you're growing up, but if you had a mom who was a doctor, I'm sure biology is kind of organically crept into things anyway, or you could always ask her questions you had about biology. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm the daughter of three scientists. My dad's a physicist and my stepmom's a molecular biologist. So oh yes, it did run in my family. We would listen to like an audiobook about the real science of Jurassic Park when we were in the car. I grew up on Animorphs, which dubiously science, but to me was biology. Um, <laughs> so absolutely. I have loved science and biology from a very young age. I used to take like college astronomy courses when I was, I think, 11 because it was cheaper than daycare. My dad would just leave me there while he taught in his college. <laughs> Uh, okay, so you recently wrote this piece, a piece for Atlantic about outdated medical terms, and we talked about one of them. Um, and it's not just that they're outdated, they're inaccurate. Can you tell us about some of the other terms besides geriatric, geriatric pregnancy? Yeah, so there were a lot of words that just really like rub you in a weird way um, and don't feel particularly like neutral and medical. Um, so a few of them are incompetent cervix hostile uterus and failure to progress. Uh, and uh, a couple of ways that those are inaccurate, failure to progress has recently received a lot of critique for being actually a product of how hospital care is delivered. That like if you just consider um, a 
birth not progressing after a certain amount of time, um, it might be a failure to wait, actually. There might be other things you can do instead of immediately switch to a cesarean section. Um, and so the term failure to progress implies that it's like a failure on the part of the mother's body. Um, and that the best thing to do is now like go to the more invasive option. Um, the incompetent cervix is, it's just weird, but it means that a cervix dilates earlier than it's supposed to and earlier than when a baby's supposed to come out. Um, but it's doing its job in many other ways. Right. Um, <laughs> that is so wildly not neutral, <laughs> that term. <It's, laughs> but like um, the interesting thing is many doctors do not notice these things um, because they are used to words like failure and competent um, and exhaustion being in their medical textbooks. They just read them really differently. Um, and so it, it's always interesting to bring them up to doctors and have them be like, huh, that that is kind of messed up. Or like, I never saw it this way, but like now that you mention it, I did have like a patient react this way. Um, hostile uterus implies that the uterus's uh, whole reason for existing is to be, uh, to play nice with sperm and to accept it into <laughs> its folds, whereas it's actually doing a lot of other things, which we can talk about. Yeah, hostile is like, what you call like a misbehaving dog or something. I don't know. Right. <laughs> like it's like being hostile. It chose to be hostile in this, <laughs> in this situation where you, it's basically like you have one acting like it has one job. Right. You define it by its ability to accept or receive sperm. So you define it as a passive entity that does the receiving, which it's actually incredibly dynamic and active. Yeah, you're right. I had it. I have it like opposite. So I was, it's not that it gives it. What does that word? Agency. agency. Yeah, it's taking away uh, agency. Yeah. I mean, it's it's both like giving it a weird agency and making it sound like an employee that is not doing its job and then taking away agency by defining its role very narrowly. It's quiet quitting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I love that. My uterus is quiet quitting. Wait. Oh, my God. I got it. Um, <laughs> one way that a lot of these terms are less accurate also is that they make a very binary split between two things. So geriatrics suggests there is a cliff and after it, everything becomes way more risky. Um, and just like the calculus changes dramatically. And um, maybe similarly in the weight science realm, obese um, is a term that means like you are above a certain percentage, your BMI is above this. And doctors are now saying that there's many more um, precise and useful terms. So if you say pregnancy 35 to 40, pregnancy 40 to 45, that gives you a lot more information to work with. And similarly with obesity, which can be considered a judgmental term, you say they're in the 91st percentile of weight for their age. Um, so that's a concrete way that this language is not just judgmental, but medically imprecise. Yes. When it comes to medical, the medical field, precision would be preferred. It, it seems important. Right. Well, language language always has to do many things in medicine. It often is very descriptive. If you think about anatomical terms, they tell you exactly where a body part is in the body, um, often what its function is. Uh, and they now have to be acceptable and often readable to the patient because now we have open notes and patients are able to read all their medical notes. And they have to convey information easily from doctor to doctor. Like you do need to tell your colleague that this 
cervix has opened earlier than it should, and now you need to move on to the next mode of treatment. Um, you need to convey that precisely and quickly. So what does the uterus do besides rejecting sperm? <laughs> wow. I'm so happy you asked that, Carrie. The uterus is one of the most dynamic and regenerative organs in the body. Not only does it grow to like 40 times its size, uh, create the placenta, the only temporary organ in the human body, um, and maintain the like delicate semi-permeable mother-baby barrier during pregnancy. But when you are not pregnant, which for many of us is our entire lives, um, it is actually essentially creating a new organ every month. So every month, um, triggered by the cycling hormones going on your body, um, the uterus grows a whole new lining, which are just all new cells. Um, they're called deciduous cells because they fall away at some point, like the like tree, trees, like yeah. tree leaves. <laughs> exactly. And it also grows entirely new spiraling blood vessels to supply this tissue with nutrients and what it needs. Um, and then the drop in estrogen and progesterone that happens around your period, uh, basically tells those vessels to like cut off oxygen, they die violently, and that causes the lining to shed. Um, so it's really, it's full of stem cells. It's like generating new growth constantly. Um, some people talk about it in terms of almost like practicing how to create the, the best uh, like composition of lining and how to do this job best. Um, but it's, uh, pretty amazing. Like literally the stem cells in the uterus have been used um, partially because they're so easily available compared to like blood marrow um, to specialize them, turn them into neurons or insulin producing cells to treat Parkinson's or diabetes. Um, so your uterus is doing a lot for you. Um, it's not just the organ of pregnancy. Rachel, you're making me cry over here. I'm like, that is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. You know, I'm thinking about like Oprah, the JJ. And so we play linguistic gymnastics so much to avoid saying vagina or to talk about these things. We just accept it. A lot of us just like passively accept that. Absolutely. And so, yeah, to be introduced to the idea that you don't have to be grossed out by these things, that even in fact, it's quite a beautiful process. Like our bodies are, you know, doing things uh, that are quite beautiful. <laughs> It Absolutely. Almost, it almost makes the pain worth it. Almost. Right. <laughs> right. I can't speak. I have not I've not experienced childbirth, so I Oh, I meant I just meant the period pain. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it used to make me vomit. I used to get such horrible pain that I would actually vomit. So, oh my god. Yeah, so there were times when I really hated my uterus. <laughs> yes, right. And I, I right. I think this was a very tricky um line that I had to walk during the book. I think that putting the quote, female body on a pedestal and saying like, we are all goddesses and we have all of this amazing feminine biology. I think that just essentializes women in a way that is not helpful. Um, but you are fighting against, I would say, a very biased bent of history that has treated these organs as unmentionable, taboo, shameful, and like you just said, Megan, disgusting. And so there does need to be a pushback there. Um, and like, I argue that the scientists that are pushing back against that are actually the ones making these really important new discoveries and reimagining these organs. Um, I also do talk a lot about exactly the kind of language that you were saying, Megan, this euphemistic, often cutesy language. Um, the fact that mothers 
like in the UK, some of the words were the craziest to me. So I'll just mention those, but like, we'll introduce the vagina as your mini, your foo-foo, your fairy, your tuppence. So there's this one strain of like cutesy euphemisms. And then there's a strain of like, literally the, the vagina is Voldemort. You cannot say its name. It's the nether regions, the private parts, the down there, the between your legs. And like, how can you, how can you have empowered knowledge about your own body? How can you convey knowledge about your own body if you literally can't even talk about it? It's like the Bermuda Triangle. Um, and I think it really affects our intimate relationships with ourselves if we automatically are thinking of it as just down there, the place you don't touch or you don't think about unless you're giving birth or having sex. That really affects how you think about your parts. And like, yeah, periods often suck and suck for some people more than others, but wouldn't it change our relationship if we were introduced to them with this kind of curiosity and like, this is what is happening. This is what your body is doing and why it's important for the health of your entire body, not just for if you choose to get pregnant. Well, and I feel like this leads to like dangerous body image things, but also like sexual situations too, because you're just like, you're disempowered. Yeah. Oh, so, and then something's cutesy, like you call it cutesy thing, like fairy. That was one of them, right? And mm-hmm, then you're also yeah. saying, like, down there, it's like, okay, like, it's this little princess. And also, mm. like, you know, it's also very shameful. And none of those are right. Like, it's not the whole picture at all. But there's definitely some cognitive dissonance there, right? That, like, it's shameful, but also yeah, it's a princess or it, and it needs to be pure and you should douche it and, like, there's a lot of dissonance. Like, how can you come up with a more balanced view of your own body when you're getting all of this mixed messaging? How do we move away from that? I think your book is a good start, but you also mentioned the scientists that are, you know, in the lab doing some great things. Like, how do we move away from saying nether regions? I mean, on the one hand, we just do. Yeah. <laughs> we, you know, in our individual circles, use frank terminology and teach it to our kids and um but i understand that's much harder done than said i've thought a lot about sex ed in this country and that i would really like to see it disrupted i know there is some really good progressive and um really inclusive sex ed happening right now partly like through planned parenthood um but I think that's a really good inflection point when kids are hitting puberty and having all these questions about their own bodies. That's the time to give them this precise vocabulary and make sure that it's not uh, full of this baggage of shame and like off limits um, to talk about their pleasure and the changes in their body in a positive way to say like, isn't this awesome that your ovaries are starting to pump out these hormones that support your brain health, your bone health, every organ in your body, and will be doing so for the rest of your life. Um, And also are ovulating eggs in this crazy wild way where these like uh, little follicles are like Han Solo trapped in like in this moment of being frozen in time until your body says, okay, time to take action. And they like burst out of the ovary in this like pretty violent and crazy explosion. Um, Like make it a journey, make it fun. I don't think you have to try that hard because it's 
really like amazing what's happening inside of you. Um, but yeah, I think labeling, labeling things correctly at that age is pretty important. I think you're also getting a lot of slang and hearing a lot of different terms at that time. So that's maybe a good time to establish some standard words and, you know, to like, I think it's important for kids to be able to talk about their own bodies in an accurate way, whether it's because like, like the worst case scenarios, like a kid has had an assault experience and needs to be able to explain what happened. Um, but also as they're like exploring themselves and their sexuality, it's very important to have clear communication. There's a lot of ways, but I think having these frank conversations and hopefully like more mainstream media taking um, this kind of thing seriously, um, sexual health and uh, conditions that are often thought of as women's health conditions, that's a great start. And even just using the word vagina. So I remember this was a long time ago now, like close to 20 years ago here here in Vancouver, CBC radio, one of the announcers struggled to say the vagina monologues. And I was embarrassed for her that this was so hard for her. I was just like, this shouldn't be that bad. (laughs) Right. And that was 20 years ago. Like, come on. It wasn't like 50, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I had terrible sex ed. Did we have sex ed? I don't even know. Um, But even then, we need the person giving the class to not be hesitant about saying the words. I'm imagining we Mm. still even run into the problem of, well, I can tell that this, you know, the teacher is, like, struggling to say vagina. Like, Right. What kind of message does that give you? Like, it's really off limits. Like, oh, man, this is, like, yeah, exactly. Um, I was just remembering it. And my sex ed was also terrible in Southern California. But at one point they like pulled all the female students in fourth grade aside and told us about our periods and people's moms came, but like my mom couldn't, she was a doctor, she was busy. And I remember like raising my hand and being like, wait, so it's like peeing, like you can like decide when to bleed and then stop it, Um, which totally made sense in retrospect, but all the moms laughed at me and they they were just they were just like no that's not how it works and i'm like what kind of a shutdown was that like why doesn't it work that way why weren't you just like this is someone's curious it's a good opportunity to talk about how this works but they probably didn't know how it worked either no seriously and they were also probably just feeling kind of ashamed about it because there was just so much shame around it Even oh definitely when i was a kid it was still pretty shameful to talk about yeah. i had okay sex ed but that's because you're Canadian. Mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> yes. But I mean, I, I think vagina is in the air and maybe... Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that. I know. Um, <laughs> I do too. There's vagina in the air. <laughs> Spring is coming. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> but no, I mean, like I am in a specific bubble, but I see more and more books with the word vagina on the title. Um, yep, I see it in mainstream news articles. One really interesting thing I've noticed is since the fall of Roe v. Wade, um, there has been so much more public discussion about what used to be like really technical terms about reproductive health. So like ectopic pregnancy, um, endometriosis, those words are all in the milieu now. And I think um, people understand why it's important. And that like in a weird way makes me hopeful. Yes. Yeah. And I've also seen a lot of conversations about, hey, no, you know, the vulva and the vagina are different. And like that, that was never a thing that would have come up 
20 years ago. I'm actually, my next um, language article is on the etymology of the word vulva. Nice. Um, so yeah, okay. that's something I bring up as well. Cool. Is that related to vulgar? No, no. I okay. mean, but not Karen, as far as my I, research has shown. I was making shown. sure, but I was, cause it's on my mind. Cause I'm thinking, okay, um, there's a lot of, there are linguists who look at this too, where it's like, what is taboo? What is vulgar? I, I, spend more time in the like race ethnicity um, part of linguistics. So I'm thinking vulgar is defined as for some people, the way that black people speak. So African-American English. And it's like, okay, this is just playing out the biases <laughs> the, the, that we have. And it's the same thing here when we're like, there are even people who have vaginas or who have vulvas that are afraid to say these words out loud because society at large is has def- has decided this is vulgar because of how we feel about women. Well, also Absolutely. sex too, because even yeah. even terms for men are a little still a little taboo too. Like we don't go around talking about penises as much as maybe we should. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think there's definitely, like, I think that these biases definitely harm men and people with penises. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not as much, but, though. Not as much, for sure. Correct. But I do think that penis is so much more acceptable and so much more funny rather than It is shameful. funnier. There's a different connotation. It's funnier, but I don't think it's, like, I still think it's considered vulgar. Yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. And then, I mean, you can look at things like erectile dysfunction and how really like big pharma made that a completely acceptable thing to say. There's ED. It was almost like neutralized in a way and medicalized in a way that a lot of female sexual health has not been. But I just wanted to address the kind of race bias thing. Um, That's something that I talk about a lot in my book. And I usually do it in the way of showing what type of bodies were considered the ideal, which is often like the white male and how anything that deviated from that ideal got described in a certain way, like not like not quite vulgar, but more like inferior, like deviant, unhealthy, um, and, you know, not ideal. So like one example is that the ovaries didn't have their own word, their own name until the 1600s. They were just called female testicles um, and considered like just kind of a poor inferior version that might make something called female sperm, but might just be like a remnant of the perfect male body. And I talk a lot about the vaginal microbiome, which is recently getting a a boost in research. But one big problem, I think, with the early research on it was that any type of vaginal microbiome, which is like the ecosystem in your vagina, um, that wasn't what like, quote, like, normal white women had was considered unbalanced or unhealthy. And that was often like the typical flora of like Hispanic and black women. Um, So I think, like you said, it's automatically considered less than desirable based on our biases about entire groups, um, which is not scientific. (laughs) No, it's not scientific at all. And (laughs) I'm thinking about medical research where they find uh, if you're a menstruating person, you are a confounding factor. So you are not included in the quote unquote typical um, participant. Like, so we know how <laughs> white male bodies 
um, do in this medical research, but we don't know about anything else because it's a quote unquote confounding variable. Yeah, that, that's especially ironic. So I think it was 1993 that the NIH said that um, women and minorities, which weirdly leaves out women and minorities, um, had to be included in most medical research. But yeah, so the logic is so interesting because they're saying if you menstruate, then you are just so confounding that you like would mess up the data and you can't possibly be in this data set. However, we will do this research with white men and then extrapolate it to all people who menstruate because you're similar enough that this will work. And it's like, wait, you don't see the cognitive dissonance there? But then why is my menstruation such a problem? Right. Slash not all women menstruate. Slash like, wow, it's 2023. We can we can work with this data, guys. Right. This idea that it's quote unquote bad data. No, it's data. We need that data too. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Right, right. Yeah. If it is such a huge confounding factor, that means it's like even more important to study if you really think it affects your health that much. Yes. Yeah. And so all of this is just perpetuating bias among doctors that sometimes they don't even realize it. Like you said that you talk to doctors, bring up these terms and they're like, oh, yeah. Do you think that's how it usually plays out where people just haven't thought about these things? If we're moving past this, we start saying things like vagina. We can go to these doctors and be more empowered like, how would that look like? How is this interaction looking like now between patient and doctor, do you think, with these bias terms? I think medical culture is a pretty, like, rigid and um, and standardized system. Like, you are kind of getting indoctrinated for four years and then your residency with a specific set of language and ideas and yeah, thoughts about what Western medicine can and should do for people's body and health. So it makes a lot of sense that you have to do a lot of like accepting these terms. Um, you're you're doing so much intake that it's very hard to like interrogate or close read every term you're getting. So yeah, some stuff definitely just won't have come to your attention. Um, some stuff like won't like patients also won't notice it, and so it won't ever come up. Um, and like one one thing I'm thinking of is there are an incredible number of diseases and even body parts named after very problematic male discoverers, um, including a lot of Nazi doctors. And about 10 years ago, there was a big movement in medicine, like when people realized this and started like uncovering the roots of these words, then they would try to purge all of these from medicine, um, which was a huge effort. And sometimes really complicated things to come up with replacements that end up being like longer, more unwieldy, harder to learn. So there was a whole reckoning. So I, I do think when people know better, they do better. That's what our podcast is all about. Yeah. So like some stuff just hasn't come to people's attention and it totally makes sense. And it's no one's individual fault. I mean, on the on the other hand, it just depends where you're situated, right? I think that if you haven't had the experience of being um, kind of dismissed and gaslit from having a chronic uh, illness that's considered to be like a female illness um, for most of your life, it is harder for you to be as aware and sensitive to that. If like you know, if you uh, you need to be exposed to it in some way. Um, Fortunately, I think those conversations are now happening, including in the mainstream media. And I definitely know there's a lot of individual doctors who are part of this movement to have more frank and empowered discussions with their patients, treat their patient as like a colleague in their own treatment. So of course, not all, but specifically a lot of doctors that are very um, active on social media, um, 
So, I mean, two I know are Dr. Rachel Rubin, Dr. Maria Uloko. Um, they are sexual health medicine doctors. So they, and they're also urologists. So like, basically they would describe it as like, they talk about like peeing and sex and penises. And so they're really comfortable with stuff that nobody wants to talk about. So they're sort of the ideal doctors to start this frank conversation, um, to use all of this direct language and to champion um, like patients coming in with their own research and wanting to talk about what affects them. Um, and I think that's like a really good, a really good model of what these conversations could look like. I think a problem is that most of those doctors work in private practices that often don't take insurance and are not accessible to quite a lot of people. And they're super rare, like a sexual medicine specialist. Um, we don't have very many in this country. Um, it's a niche area of gynecology and urology. So those are good. Like, I think it's good to look at what those people are doing, but it's like, I got to acknowledge that many doctors don't have this luxury. They only have 15 minutes with the patient. Um, they maybe can't focus on some of these issues that are super important to people's well-being and quality of life, but like they have to do your pap smear and deliver your baby and that's it. So there are a lot of restrictions. Um, and I, I, I do think there is room for many, many doctors to be less threatened by patient knowledge and by a patient's interpretation yes. of what's happening in their own body um, and respect their embodied knowledge more. And I think that that can happen in 15 minutes. Amen. <laughs> Amen. This is just reminding me of how, like, I really thought that getting a pap smear was punishment for having a vagina. Like, the, like when I was, I mean, when did it start? Like, punishment. Yeah. Yeah, I see that, obviously. I mean, it is getting, horrible. Just, <laughs> getting the speculum in there. I like I was I was just getting like an appointment the other day with a speculum and I was like, Ugh, like sometimes they're worse than others, whatever. And the gynecologist was like, oh, it's not that bad. And I'm like, no, no, no. Don't tell me how my yeah, body feels. You like, can't say that. Oh, my God. Yeah, Why are they still so horrible? How haven't we gotten a better speculum? But the speculum, that's interesting. There is um, an Atlantic article, not by me, that is why we can't have a better speculum. Like what are like the limitations on this tool? Um, but many people are now aware that the original speculum is said to be developed by J. Marion Sims and is still in some hospitals called the Sims speculum. And like this was, I mean, this was not a fun device that was not meant for the comfort of women. And the fact that we still have something very similar is, yeah, is horrifying. I'm thinking, though, of like when this, it's interesting how the speculum became sort of a feminist tool during the 70s and how it wasn't it that some versions of our bodies ourselves, I think maybe a similar book came with your own plastic speculum to do your own, uh, your own like look down there. I, I thought that was super cool. Um, I hope they were more comfortable because I, I obviously didn't get my hands on one. Well, just thinking about putting plastic in there in my vagina. No, thank you. <laughs> oh, I prefer the plastic to the metal. I hate the coldness of the metal. I know, but and the plastic. Oh, it's not, it's not really safe, is it? <laughs> Maybe it's BPA free. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know. We put a lot of things in there. I'm like, I got yeah. all my vibrators. Yeah, but those are like, probably they... silicone, which is. Yeah. So why? So I'm I'm just thinking out loud here. Like, why don't we have a silicone? Plastic is not is not um, 
it's permeable or something unlike silicone it's not it's not a safe... i don't know exactly what type of plastic it is um and yeah this was the 70s so very very likely not, not safe a... <laughs> but like how about a silicone speculum can someone work that up for well me? that's what i was thinking yeah. but then when you said something about like all the limitations my, my immediate thought was oh it's probably too soft it's probably hard to make it like rigid mm-hmm. enough to like okay okay metal covered in silicone yes there we go there we go problem solved <laughs> i don't know here i'm just i'm just thinking there's gotta be something there's gotta out there. be this is it's just so horrible yeah because the coldness is awful and it does feel like i don't know like you're undergoing some sort of experiment as opposed to you know getting health care <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that's it absolutely and you gotta imagine since women aren't like in historically women aren't in the room where these things are happening being uh because they're not allowed so things like J. Marion Sims, and I'm looking at this speculum. So they're not considering our bodies, our embodied uh, experiences, because they can't possibly understand. It's the same now with like um, medical research and all this. Well, at least there are more women. At least there are more minoritized people in the room that can say, uh, we need to know what menstruating bodies are doing. Excuse me, why are you like asking that question and not considering this? You know, like these kind of things, right? Right. So then why do we still not have a good speculum? Is what we're <laughs> yes, asking. Absolutely. No, yeah, exactly. No, yeah. A lot of advancements are going to happen, I think, because more people are allowed into the room. I don't I don't know how many people know that you can always ask for a smaller speculum. Um, so mm. there's like multiple sizes and you don't you don't really get told that when you go into the room. So that's one thing doesn't yeah. help everyone, but helps some people. When Sims in his like autobiography wrote about developing the speculum, he wrote about it as that it was like the telescope, that it would make this obscure, dark wilderness of the female body um, <laughs> obvious and visible. And he, he was like, I could see the cervix as plain as like the nose on my face. So the idea was a tool for science to view the material of the female body, not a tool to make you feel comfortable and at ease and think about your no. experience. It's like the moon landing. He's going uncharted territory. Oh, yeah. Like he just wants to. That was yeah. like all of these anatomists. They were always describing it in terms of conquest and often colonialism. There's a lot of weird, like either architectural or like city planning type words. Like I really liked that the, or I really was amused that the entrance to the vagina is called the vestibule which is basically like a waiting room or a lobby like we're just waiting to enter so funny i i i'm just thinking of funny things that well carrie says often like why do we say someone's a pussy we should say someone's a scrotum i'm not the only one who said that i didn't come up with that i know but it's (laughs) (laughs) i hear that a lot or like we could make like being a pussy because I don't know I do like that term actually like we could reclaim it as something a little different like if you're soft but strong like yeah. you're a softy yeah. but also like uh very powerful oh then I'm such a pussy yeah <laughs> exactly I'm a pussy I'm a Pisces moon <laughs> you use the word medicalized mm. what do you mean by that so I think I was talking about erectile dysfunction and how like having problems with erection sometimes became a very specific medical term that also became like okay to talk about in like subway ads and to your doctor. Um, So in a way that's really powerful. Um, And 
Similarly, there are some terms that are controversial, like sexual dysfunction for women. That would be like not reaching orgasm or being aroused at certain times that like having a name for it that's understandable in the medical realm um, allows you to um, be taken more seriously to talk about it and to discuss certain options depending like like perhaps in like a menopausal phase like um, uh, vaginal estrogen might be helpful um, on the flip side there's really important arguments that over medicalizing the female body has led to a lot of issues because things like hysteria and neuroses were like common medical bases for removing women's ovaries or even like amputating the clitoris in Victorian times. So like you want to be careful and you want to be careful about pathologizing bodies because there's many, many reasons why you might have issues orgasming with a certain partner that have nothing to do with your biology and anatomy. Um, but there's been a turn towards like, we want to validate um, women and people with vulvas experiences as also being like as being real and real often means biological or medical to people um and like that's super important with things like endometriosis that literally were called hysteria or like all in your head or just deal with it so it was really important that we acknowledged the biological bases and therefore the medical treatments possible for that um but there is a danger i think of going too far um and medicalizing everything that has to do with your sexual experience um, or excluding the possibility that psychological um, treatments and attention to stress and anxiety help because those issues really are implicated in chronic diseases as well. I've often in my head referred to myself as like, or said to myself, stop being hysterical. Mm, yeah. Wow. <laughs> I know. No, I know. I'm, sure I I'm in to. therapy. Don't worry. It's just like even this is what it is to be empowered, right? Where I'm like, wait, I know where hysteria comes from. I know the history of this, right? And like, why am I why am I telling myself? Have you read Kate Mann's stuff? Oh, yeah, yeah. I quote her. Yeah, yeah. I found that stuff to be very helpful, too, about like being more empowered uh, about, I guess, being a woman or knowing that society is basically gaslighting you this there is a step in empowerment that is cognitive dissonance which is for some yeah. reason a phrase i keep saying in this conversation yes. but right where you're <laughs> no, like no, but it's important because you have inter like we cannot help but internalize all these messages and that kind of language and, and at the same time these this other part of us is more distant and aware and is saying like you shouldn't use that term or like that's not feminist but Right. Like, I, I just think you can't judge your first instincts and the first the vocabulary that's so entrenched in you. So, yeah, it's 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 rough. It is it's rough. rough. It's just interesting because to me, hysterical feels really old. Like the only yeah, yeah, interpretation yeah. Yeah. I have for that term now is funny. So like, mm, um, interesting. If if I was going to huh. call myself hysterical, I'd be like patting myself on the back, which no. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I I mean that's a good use too. It is weird that it means both those things actually. Anybody yeah, I forgot that? about that. Semantic use, drift. <laughs> that's a thing Semantic that happens. Drift. Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's a term in linguistics. Yes. I just like like to remind everyone that neutrality is also something that's defined in a way mm. that vulgar is defined or what's taboo. Neutral is also <laughs> defined by humans who are not neutral. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Do you think that science can be feminist? Do you think that this medical research world can be feminist? Do you think the sterile halls of medicine can be feminist? <laughs> wow, how funny you asked that. I recently wrote an essay called 
feminist science is not an oxymoron. Um, yeah, that is. I didn't all know about... that at all. About you. <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> no, oh, I, I didn't see. know. I didn't okay, know. that's why you asked this. Okay, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, yes. So. Indeed, I do believe that feminist science is not only possible, but is being done in really powerful ways in many sterile halls of science. And it was really important to me to like articulate some of those ideas, because even the scientists doing the work that I have been talking about, like reimagining the uterus as dynamic and regenerative, even they did not see themselves as feminist scientists. And they thought that the word sounded like an oxymoron. Whereas what feminist science is, there's a lot of definitions, but it's often about making visible those invisible assumptions that we have that are baked into so-called objective scientific literature. And once you make those obvious, then you can counter them, come up with new hypotheses, test them using all the same tools of science you've already been using, but come up with something that accounts for those biases, counteracts them, and reaches something closer to reality, um, acknowledging that we all bring our own biases to the table, but the more perspectives you bring, particularly marginalized perspectives, because those are the people most affected by things like calling a certain type of body the ideal and calling a certain type of uh, vaginal ecosystem disbalanced. Um, so the more of those perspectives we can bring, the closer we get to a fuller picture of reality. And that is feminist. What an excellent place to end the conversation. Thank you so I much. Know. <laughs> Thank you. So I want to talk to you like for 10 more hours, but that was I know. Like, I really exactly. want to talk more about linguistics. Can we, yeah, like let's, let's. Sure. Yes. Let's do a linguistics conversation. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> we have, we always leave our listeners with one final message. Don't be an asshole. Don't be an asshole. <laughs> Don't be an asshole. Be a pussy. Yes. yes! Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the Vocal Fries podcast is produced by me, Carrie Gillen. Theme music by Nick Granham. You can find us on Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Vocal Fries Pod. You can email us at vocalfriespod at gmail.com, and our website is vocalfriespod.com. <laughs>